apologize for the technical difficulties. We're having some issues with the music here, but uh, plenty to go through in the second hour of the show. It's uh, 6.05. We're on the air till about 7 o'clock tonight. A lot of great stuff going on in Major League Baseball. The St. Louis Cardinals playing the Washington Nationals now. They're in the top of the seventh in Washington. And they're still tied 1-1. And uh, those of you who watched earlier today, the San Francisco Giants move on to the NLCS with a 6-4 victory over the Cincinnati Reds. So nice job there. The Giants move on. Uh, I'm going to start off kind of by going into the Giants a little bit because uh, something that happened yesterday that I was a little bit on, I was a little bit disappointed in really what was happening before, and that's the Giants and Tim Lincecum. Now, Lincecum obviously did not have a good year this year. He, had, he, was, he was down this season, an ERA over five. In fact, if you go through Major League Baseball and all the pitchers that were qualified to win the ERA title, Lincecum had the highest ERA in Major League Baseball. And obviously, Lincecum, because he's Tim Lincecum, is going to go out there and pitch every fifth day. He was not going to the bullpen. He was not going to be benched, regardless of how poor he pitched. Now, as the season went on, he pitched a little better. I remember watching him in a couple starts in August and September. He kind of kind of got it together a little bit, was pitching well. And, uh, you know, is still in the Giants' mind, in Bruce Bochy's mind, the fifth starter in a five-man rotation. Now, the Giants have some good starting pitching. Matt Cain and his perfect game and everything he brings to the table is obviously your number one at this point. You got Bumgarner and Vogelsong and Barry Zito. You know, they do have some talented pitchers in that staff. So it's not a matter of, you know, the Giants going to other pitchers that are minor league guys or, you know, second-rate caliber pitchers to Tim, Tim Lincecum. But it is interesting to see Lincecum pitch out of the bullpen. And really the way this series went, I tweeted about it yesterday. And I, I, I was a little bit premature in my tweet, but it was a lot of that, a little frustration. The fact that the Giants went out there, they went with Kane, they went with Bumgarner and Vogelsong, and used Barry Zito in game four. And Barry Zito gets knocked out in the third inning of that game. And I see Contos come in in relief for the Giants. To that point, I was like, what does Tim Lincecum got to do to get in the game? I mean, they're facing elimination. They were facing elimination after game two. They win game three. They win game four. But in that spot, where is Tim Lincecum? How come he is not the first guy out of the bullpen in that spot? Now, Bruce Bochy goes out there. Obviously, turns out to be a good move. He goes to Lincecum an inning or so later, and Lincecum throws four in the third innings, gives up just the one run, leading the Giants to a victory in game four. And, of course, today in game five, the Giants finish it off. They move on to the NLCS. Now, my question is, what does Lincecum become at this point? Is he a factor in a rotation? The guy that's won two Cy Young Awards, the guy that is really considered, regardless of his 2012 season, one of the best pitchers in the game. He's an ace. The Giants, other, outside of Mount, Matt Cain, don't have anybody with the ability to shut down a lineup like Tim Lincecum has. Now, what, what do they do here? Do they use Lincecum as a starter in the NLCS? My prediction would be yes. I wouldn't be surprised if he went out there in game two or game three against either the Nationals or the Cardinals. And, I, and honestly, I, I'm, I'm, I, I don't mean to you know, divert a little bit here, but I, I see the Cardinals and Nationals with another exciting finish today. 1-1 top of the seventh over in Washington. And I'm telling you, it's going to be another one of those great postseason moments, which we have seen just about this whole, whole postseason and last year. 
And let's be honest, the postseason of 2011 has carried right over into this season. If you're a baseball fan, you've got to love what you see, regardless of your team affiliation. But to finish off the Lincecum talk, I wouldn't be surprised if he was out there and uh, you know started a game in the NLCS. And I w- also wouldn't be surprised if he went out there and threw you know, a gem, if he threw seven, eight innings and just came out there. Because, I, hey, listen, he threw two scoreless innings in game, in game two and then throws the four and the third innings with just a one run in game four. He, he, he's got the ability to go out there and just shut a team down. And to be honest, if I had Kane and Lincecum as, my, as, as two of my starting pitchers, they'd be pitching one-two in the postseason, regardless of numbers. And I think Bruce Bochy's got to look at it. Dave Rigetti, I know, I know there's, there's been some issues between Lincecum and Rigetti in San Francisco. And next week, I'm going to be excited to uh, welcome in John DiAquisto, a former pitcher for the Giants in the 70s, and get some perspective from him on the stuff that's going on with Lincecum. I think it's going to be very interesting. But with, with the Giants and Lincecum, I think he should start game two. And, you know, some people might say you're crazy and look at the numbers. Lincecum is not the same pitcher. But Lincecum gives the Giants the best chance to win. Madison Bumgarner is very good. I wouldn't mind seeing him twice in a seven-game series. But I'm telling you, the Giants have their best opportunity because of their starting pitching. It's not because of this offense. You want to talk about Pablo Sandoval or Buster Posey maybe being the MVP or Hunter Pence. The Giants' best opportunity to get to the World Series this year is the same as it was in 2010. They're going to go as far as their starting pitching takes them. And the Giants' best starting rotation starts with Matt Cain as the number one guy and then goes with Tim Lincecum after that. Yeah, you want to work Bumgarner in there? I don't have a problem with that. Bumgarner is a very good pitcher. I would love to see him in a big game. But Lincecum's got to be part of it. And if they're starting Barry Zito in game four and Lincecum's coming out of the bullpen, then I think Bruce Bochy needs to get his head examined. It's time to unleash Lincecum. Here's a guy who has gotten some rest in the first series. He wasn't trusted to pitch a big game. You know, he didn't have to throw 100 pitches. He pitched a couple games in relief, of course, helped the Giants to a Game 4 victory. Unleash Lincecum. Let the chains out and let him go out there. I think the Giants will have a very good, more of a chance of success with Lincecum in there than some of the other guys, particularly Barry Zito. Let's be honest. Barry Zito is going to finish up the end of his contract and walk off into the sunset. The San Francisco Giants made one of the worst decisions to sign him, but... Going back to it, they got a World Series championship under Barry Zito's time. So it's not as all of a bad decision. You know, it's not what the Mets are saying about Johan Santana as they've won nothing and gone into obliteration. They've won with Barry Zito. Maybe not because of Barry Zito, but they've won. And I tell you, the Giants are going to look a lot better with Lincecum being part of the pro, of the, uh, the, the NLCS. Once again, John Pielli, Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network. Once again, it's hour two of the radio program. I'm waiting on my next guest, which uh, hopefully will be joining me in a little bit. I um, want to let you know, on the 25th, October 25th, Thursday, we're going to welcome Boy Meets Machine back in studio. They're going to be joining us again. And I tell you, they do a great job for everything that they do with their, you know, their, the promotion of their band and everything. They got their CD that they released within the last month or so. 
So, uh, you know, shout out to Joel and Christian and Joe and everything going on with them. I know they're working in a new uh, a new uh, band member and stuff like that. So we're going to see them in studio in a couple weeks. You know, past ball show on TR Radio Network. Like I said, next week, John D'Aquisto and uh, working on some other guests to definitely uh, help the program out a little bit. But, you know, we touched a little bit about it on the Yankees. I do think the Orioles are done. I can't imagine the Orioles going out there, winning in Yankee Stadium two games in a row, particularly the way the game transpired last night. And I, I said this before, and I was really kind of getting into it. The Orioles' chance they had was coming off of that game two win. And it was all set up for them going into game three last night. Things worked out. It was a low-scoring game. You know, nothing, nothing really going on. It wasn't a slugfest. Their starting pitching was good enough. They got him into their bullpen. They got a 2-1 lead, and he took it in at a 9. And I'll tell you, that was their one chance to close the door. And if they won game three, I'll tell you, I would be thinking the other way. I would be thinking that the Yankees would really have something to worry about. Not anymore. I think the Yankees finish it off tonight. I could see Hughes going out there, giving them a solid performance. Maybe the Yankees hitting a little bit against Joe Saunders. And the Yankees, I think they're going to move on to face who I really feel is going to be the Detroit Tigers. And I know it's easy to go that route when you got the two small market teams in Baltimore and Oakland and the two Cinderella, you know, I know it's hard to just say to go with any of those teams. I had faith in the Orioles after game two. And I got probably more faith in the A's tonight than I did through the first four games of the series. But in the end, I think the, the stronger team ends up moving on. And, you know, how does that relate real quick to the Giants and the Reds? Because I did have the Reds going to the World Series this year. Are the Reds that much better than the Giants? That's a real good question to ask you. You know, the Giants do have the starting pitching, and they showed it. And the Giants came up with some clutch hits. The Posey Grand Slam today was huge. That was a big deal for them. But in the end, I just think the Giants outlasted the Reds. In my opinion, I think the Giants and the Reds are the two best teams in the National League. That should have been set up more for your NLCS than your NLDS. And that all being said, listen, did the best team win? I think you got to say that. I think it's fair enough to say that the best team won in that series. But listen, I don't know what to expect out of the Cardinals and the Nationals here. I think it's going to be a close game as it's been through seven innings. And it's gonna it's gonna be one really one swing, one one little mistake, one little lapse maybe in a defense or a bad pitch made or you know a clutch at bat or something like that, and that's gonna determine what happens in Game Four. But moving into a potential Game Five, and of course the Nationals have to win at home to force a Game Five in Washington, where I'm sure the fans are enjoying everything they're seeing there. You know a franchise whether they were with Montreal or prior to that where they got the, uh, their grandfathered into the old Washington Senator teams. You know about the postseason history there, the lack thereof, the fact that there's actually something going on in Washington right now and the interest and everything going on in that. But I still think the Cardinals have the edge here. And Davey Johnson's talked about saying all the right things and having faith in his team and saying the right thing to his team. But I think the Cardinals are a little bit better right now regardless of the amount of games that the Washington Nationals won this season. And they, and they did the job. The Washington Nationals got the job done this year. And I find it hard if you're in the National League 
to come up with a better manager of the year candidate than Davey Johnson. And I know he inherited a team that was there. Davey Johnson didn't build this team. You, may, you may, can make the case that he built the team with the New York Mets of, the, of early to mid-80s because he was in the minor leagues with them. And he saw a lot of the young players before they came up, before he took over as manager in the night before the 1984 season. But this team is good. And the Nationals deserve credit. Davey Johnson deserves credit for taking a team that was as bad as can be last year and ends up putting them in a position. I know they finished third place last year, but nobody had them win in the NL East. And some people did. You know, some teams said, hey, they're going to be a sleeper. But I think as much as the Phillies succumbed the division to Washington, they earned it. You know, they're winning them 90-plus games was not handed to them. They earned what they got. And similarly to Baltimore, similarly to Oakland, these teams earned their right to be in the postseason. And I'm going to put that thought on hold. We're going to welcome in our next guest, and that's pitcher in the Mets minor league system, Dylan Owen. Dylan, you there, buddy. It's John Pielli, Passball Show on TR Radio Network. Hello. Hey, what's going on, buddy? Thanks for having a couple minutes today. Yeah, no problem. How you doing? Yeah, pretty good, man. Hey, listen, let's start out. Let's uh, you know, let everybody know what, what you're up to this offseason. How's everything going in your offseason regiment to get ready for 2013? Uh, it's going pretty well so far. I'm just kind of uh, hanging out at the house, you know, lifting weights a little bit and uh, – Playing catch every now and then, but I haven't really done too much. I hadn't decided if I was going to Venezuela or not this off season. Yeah, so you decided not to? Well, I haven't decided yet. It won't be oh, okay. until the second half, so I still have probably a month or so to decide. And I think it just all matters of how I'm feeling, you know, after my throwing program gets going a little bit, a couple more weeks, and we'll find out then. Yeah, so how's the arm feeling? The arm's been feeling good now? Yeah, it's feeling a lot better. Uh, I ran into a couple speed bumps this this season and definitely haven't gotten used to that because I've never had a problem with my arm, but I think it was just a lot of innings eating up on me the past two years. I've played winter ball the past two seasons along with some pretty long seasons also, so it's kind of catching up to me. So, yeah, Once again, this is John Pielli. I'm here with Dylan Owen, and you can follow Dylan on Twitter at uh, Dylan P. Owen. Now, as you're as as you uh, you know as you, as you're, uh, trying to figure out whether or not you want to uh, pitch in winter ball or you can pitch in winter ball this year how important do you think it is in the off season to get those extra innings in 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 the winter as you prepare for the following season well i think it's very important you know um instead of just going through your normal throwing programs as most people do throughout the uh off season you actually get to face hitters and you know work on your pitches in game game like situations so i think that helps out a lot just because it's more like a actual you know, you're pitching in a game instead of just playing catch with your buddies or, you know, throwing bullpens with your buddies. So you actually have, like, a great atmosphere to pitch in. Now, now can you see it at any point, like, hurting you a little bit as far as maybe uh, throwing too many innings there? Is there any chance that that could affect you for the next season, or is that something you just don't think about? Uh, that's definitely not anything I think about. You know, I just – I didn't realize it until uh, Dickie Scott told me this year that I had – over 270 something innings in the past two years and like, I didn't even think about that at all but I mean obviously that could cause arm problems and I've never like my arm felt great throughout the year and then I just started you know 
racking up a few innings, and then it, it just started getting sore on me a lot easier and a little rough to bounce back from. So I just needed some rest, and I think that's kind of what I'm looking at right now instead of playing off the, instead of playing in winter ball. So I don't know. We'll see. Now, as you, as you came across, you were drafted in the 2007 draft in the 20th round. You actually got off to a pretty good start in Brooklyn. You were 9-1, and 149 ERA, and a very good season in 2008 with uh, St. Lucie and Binghamton. Uh, tell us a little bit about your development and, uh, you know, really what you feel like your path is to get to the major leagues. Um, I definitely think I've de- developed a lot of pitches. When I first got drafted, I was – basically fastball slaughter guy and as I've moved up through the organization I've definitely you know got a lot more pitches such as now I throw a cutter instead of the slider and I throw a big loopy curveball and a change up so it kind of just you know keeps the hitters off balance a little bit more they really aren't as comfortable with uh, other pitches coming in but you know I think what helps me out is I can do either or I can start and I can come out the bullpen and uh you know that that helps the person out and i throw low 90s that's not awfully hard but it's not you know also too slow so i think with a pitcher like me that kind of helps out that i have a lot of pitches and i can do i'm very versatile you know yeah absolutely man it definitely helps to be able to both start or relieve once again this is john pl i'm here with mets pitching prospect dylan owen now tell us a little bit about the 2012 season um, you know, for, fortunately, you ran into, you know, the injury problem for really the first time in your career. Uh, tell us a little bit about going back and forth between starting and relieving. Does that does that put any, you know, any any stress on you psychologically? Um, you know, as you go through a couple weeks, whether you you don't know if you're going to be a starter or a reliever? I would say uh, definitely uh, it, it not only does it kind of mess with you a little bit, you know, it confuses you uh like, you know, if you're doing something wrong, which it should never be that way, but, you know, you you really don't know what's going on, and that's that's just kind of the problem sometimes. But uh, I was doing really well earlier in the season. And then uh, I think eight days went by before I pitched again, and, you know, I didn't know if I was coming out the bullpen or starting, so I couldn't really keep my throwing program sharp. And I'm kind of one of those guys that, you know, needs the throwing program, needs the long toss and stuff like that. and. I think eight days went by, and then I then I, I started a game, and after, like right after that start, I started getting a little elbow impingement, I guess you would say, and it kind of just slowed me down throughout the year because I couldn't bounce back from it fast enough, and our roster was getting expanded, so you know it was kind of hard to find a place in the in the bullpen or in the starting rotation. Now you you consider yourself uh, a starter, right? Like you figure, like most pitchers that have had, you know, the, the the track record as you have, would probably consider yourself a starter. Now, that that being said, is is that do you feel like that if you got if you became a full time reliever, that's something you could get used to? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I mean, you know, it's I think I've had success in both, and I've also I've, I've done worse as a reliever, but it's also been when I was being bounced back and forth, and it's just hard to get a grasp on, you know, what I need to throw out the bullpen, uh, if I'm ready enough, you know, the throwing program, did I throw too much before the game, you know, stuff you just have to get used to that I haven't really been used to. But, but as long as I'm pitching, you know, I'm a happy guy. It doesn't matter to me at all. I just, you know, as long as I have a routine and actually know what I'm what I'm doing, it helps out a lot. 
Yeah, and actually, this this season you had a chance to hit a home run. Tell us a little bit about that. What's that? This season you hit your uh, your your first professional home run. Tell us tell us a little bit about that. Oh, basically, uh, I ran into one pretty much. <laughs> uh, I just fouled. Uh, I think it was actually it might have been like one two. I just fouled a fastball into our dugout. That's how late I was. I mean, it literally almost hit a few guys in there and. Uh, a change up and it was right in my bat speed and I pulled it down the line. I mean, I hit a bunch. I wouldn't say a bunch, but I usually hit three or two or three every batting practice I take. Because I mean, that's basically when I was uh, recruited for college, I was a utility guy. I never was a. I was never like really brought in as a pitcher. And then I decided to this Francis Marion University, and they told me I wasn't going to hit there. So I always could do it. It's just you know whether I was going to be good at it or not. And I definitely ran into one off my buddy, Pat Mish. Felt <laughs> sorry for him. Well, uh, probably not at the time, but maybe a little bit afterwards. But uh, you, you consider yourself a hitter? You think you think it's something you could do? You made it to the major leagues? You'd be able to hit a little bit as a pitcher? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't. I definitely I think I'm a 5 o'clock hitter, put it that way. When I know what's coming in there, about 50 miles an hour, I can really <laughs> tee off on it but anywhere from – I'd say 75 and above. I, I struggle with. All right, I could, high, I could hit in high school. That was it's a lot different back then. That was the only thing I did was hit. So. Yeah, no, absolutely, man. Listen, Dylan, I want to thank you a lot for having some time today. Hopefully, uh, we could speak to you again in the near future. And uh, best of luck. Hope to see you in spring training with the Mets next season. All right, thank you, John. Hey, take care, man. And that was Dylan Owen. He's a pitcher in the Mets organization. You can follow him on Twitter, Dylan at Dylan P Owen. And uh, he, he's kind of a guy that's come across over the last uh, couple of years, was probably more prominent in the 2009-2010 season and, you know, as, as he was increasing his innings, pitching in uh, you know, St. Lucie and Binghamton and Buffalo. And he's kind of coming around the same time as uh, Dylan G, who ended up making his major league debut uh, you know, last year and then pitching this year for the Mets. And uh, he, he's a guy that uh, I think he might come under the radar. He's a guy that I think we will see in spring training next year. You know, he, he was pitching in minor league spring training the last couple of years. And I think he's a guy that, you know, may end up becoming a, uh, you know, maybe a piece somewhere. I mean, he, you know, he, he does change speeds very well. He has a decent fastball. He's kind of gotten, you know, through his experience in the minors, has kind of become more of a pitcher than a thrower. And I think he's a guy that, you know, you may be able to see in a little bit. But listen, I'm going to take a quick break here in the past ball show. Hopefully the, uh, the audio is working a little better. If not, we'll cut right back into me and uh, a little more. Up until 7 o'clock today, Pass Ball Show on PR Radio Network. Yeah, so anyway, uh, the audio is not working, man. I've had it. I'm not going to mess around with this stuff the rest of the show. I'm going to give you probably another solid half hour uh, baseball talk. Top of the eighth in uh, Washington. It's 1-1 between the Cardinals and the Nationals. I do want to thank my guests today. Great job by uh, Robert Ford, Dylan Owen, and, of course, Terry Adams. And, uh, of course, next week, John D'Aquisto. Week after that, Boyman's Machine in studio. But um, a lot of things going on in Major League Baseball. We're getting ready for... 
after the postseason starts, what I feel is the best part of the offseason where you get into after the postseason awards and stuff like that, you start to figure out what teams are going to look like for the following season. And a lot of teams, you know, you figure are going to have a very good chance of competing next year. There are very few teams that have really just kind of busted the team down to nothing and expect to be losing teams over the next several seasons. Yes, you could start out with the Houston Astros, and some other teams are going to be making that decision of whether they want to be contenders in the next couple of years or next season. And, you know, when it comes to the New York Mets, there's always that question, what are they going to do? And over the last couple of years, the problem has been the payroll since Sandy Alderson has taken over, ownership has not given them the authority to increase the payroll at all. You saw what happened from 2010 into 2011, where they really had $5 million to spend. 2011 into 2012, where they had a little bit more, maybe about $10, 15000000 million tops to spend to, increase, you know, to add different players. And they're kind of looking at the same situation coming into next season. And I'll tell you one thing that's kind of tough about it is you're trying to figure out where this team is going to be. And it's hard because you got some young players. You obviously got the star in David Wright. You got R.A. Dickey. You got the guys like Joanne Santana and Jason Bay who are getting paid like stars but obviously are towards either the end of their career or just an unproductive part of their career. But I think if you're the New York Mets and the fans, you're definitely interested in this offseason because going into the last two offseasons, you kind of had an idea that the team wasn't spending. No matter how much hope and aspirations you had in the team retaining Jose Reyes for last season, you knew it probably wasn't going to happen. But it kind of looks a little different this year as you talk about their other star and really their main star or maybe even their only star, and that's David Wright. And Sandy Alderson has made no qualms. He has not had held back from the – thoughts of wanting to retain this guy long term and wanting in his own words to make him a Met for life and you know guys like John Heyman and Ken Rosenthal are all reporting that the Mets are in negotiations with David Wright they've thrown out an offer in the six-year range of a hundred million dollars which they expect to be kind of the springboard over what's going to be a contract and as a Met fan I think you have to be optimistic I know Met fans you know, have that feeling, and some of them feel like they got to just break this thing down and get rid of everybody and give your fans nothing and quit for the next several years or whatever Whatever their feelings is. I mean, I think they're clueless, let's be honest. The people that want this thing to run another five years and get the number one draft pick three years in a row and build this ridiculous farm system, let's be honest, the farm system is better than what people think it is. And it, it is a little bit better than what fans give it credit for. You saw some of the players that came up last year. Let's not forget that this is the same organization that developed Jonathan Neese, who is at least a very good three-starter and is probably, you know, can become a two-starter. Some of the other guys, like Ike Davis, remember, he came out of the Mets farm system. Ruben Tejada came out of the Mets farm system. And, you know, obviously there's some other guys that are in the minors, whether it's Matt Harvey who made his debut this year, Zach Wheeler, who we'll probably see next year. The Mets' farm system is not too bad. The key is going to be what type of moves they make. And they don't have to be ridiculous salary moves. They don't have to increase the payroll by $50 million, which we all know they're not going to do. But what they have to do is put a team that could be competitive on the field. 
And let's be honest, the team that the Mets had in the second half of last season was not a competitive baseball team. And it showed where they dropped in the standings. Everybody gave Terry Collins credit for the way the team started out in the first half they had. But let's be honest, this was not a competitive baseball team towards the end of the season. And you could start with the outfield. The Mets do not have a major league outfielder on their roster. Jason Bay gets paid like one. But unless Jason Bay is going to hit 36 home runs again, he is not a major league outfielder. They're going to have to make some sort of moves, whether it's trades, whether it's free agency, whether Sandy Alderson is going to use his extended staff and the guys like Paul DePodesta and J.P. Ricciardi, the guys that he hired and the Mets are paying a lot of money to, to put a competitive team on the field for 2013. I don't think anybody's going out there expecting the Mets to win the World Series next year. I think that's a little, little bit too much to ask for. But can they have a competitive team that could finish 500 or better? Well, that question is going to be answered after this offseason happens, after we see what Sandy Alderson does. And what I've been waiting for for over two years since Sandy Alderson took over the helm as the Mets general manager replacing Omar Minaya is when is he going to put his stamp on this team? And that's a good question because he hasn't done it yet. Fans want to give him credit for the Beltran trade where he got Zach Wheeler. Fans want to maybe give him credit for some of the drafts over the first two years, which have been decent, but obviously have yet to produce a major league player. And nobody expects it to. Nobody expects you know Bryce Harper's and Steven Strasburg's to be taken by every team in every draft. So it's understandable that a Brandon Nimmo, a Kevin Ploiecki, a Gavin Sashini, guys like that may take a couple years to develop. But now is the time. As we're in the 2012 offseason, getting ready for the 2013 season, it's time for Sandy Alderson to put his stamp on the team. And to be honest, I couldn't tell you what it is. I couldn't tell you what it has to be. But let's be honest, a Met fan going into the 2013 season is going to be excited to see Sandy Alderson's team. Not just a rollover of the roster from the year before. And unfortunately, we had to see it in 2011 going into, two, I'm sorry, 2010 going into 2011. I don't know if we had to see it roll over again from 2011 into 2012, but we did. The 2012 Mets were the 2011 Mets minus Jose Reyes, Carlos Beltran, and Francisco Rodriguez. It will not be fair to the New York Mets fans to have to see that again for 2013. And I don't know. I mean, Sandy Alderson has made it very known that the Mets are going to pursue trades. And what does that mean? It can mean a lot. It can mean a lot of turnover. And I think a lot of Mets fans will sign up for a distinct amount of turnover for a better chance to win. Does that include trading Ike Davis? Well, listen, when it comes to Ike Davis, I would only trade him if they were bringing back something of use right now. And I know Mike Francesa suggested a Ike Davis trade for Jacoby Ellsbury. That's not going to happen. Jacoby Ellsbury is represented by Scott Boris. Scott Boris is going to make Ellsbury wait out the season next year and hit the open free agent market where he could cash in 
and get a tremendous contract. Would I be interested after the 2013 season in signing Jacoby Ellsbury? Yeah, absolutely. The guy's a five-tool player. He's a star center fielder. He's a player that you could build a team around. But I wouldn't suggest trading for him. Now, Ike Davis, to me, may have more value than he does in what he can get back for you. And I think that has to be factored in. You're not trading Ike Davis for a couple prospects. Anybody that thinks that is out of their mind. They're crazy. Just shut up already. Why would you do that? Ike Davis is young. He's entering his first year of arbitration eligibility. And coming off a season where he hit you know, 230, below 230, I know he hit 32 home runs, but he's not going to break the bank. You're not talking about a $10 million player for at least the next couple of years. And maybe if he goes out there and hits 260 with 40 home runs next year, you may have to worry about paying him for the next season. But right now, Ike Davis has more value to the New York Mets than anything that the Mets could get in return for him. And there, there's options out there. There might be. You think of a guy like Alex Gordon in Kansas City. Robert Ford was just on with us. You know, the Royals maybe are definitely looking to add some pitching. So then you throw in the factor of a potential trade, and I'm going to throw this out there. And if you want, you can join the program, number 609-910-0687. We can get you right up here. I propose a trade here, and I want to get some people's perspective on it. The Mets have Jonathan Neese, who they have signed for the next couple of years. You know, a very team-friendly contract, but they also have some young pitching. You know about Matt Harvey being in a rotation next year. You know about Zach Wheeler making his emergence at some point next season. They got R.A. Dickey. Johan Santana is going to be back. Maybe may, They may or may not have Mike Pelfrey. Dylan G. will be part of the mix. Potentially even Dylan Owen, who was on a program with us earlier. Trey Jonathan Neese. And one place I suggest, Kansas City Royals, who need a starting pitcher in exchange for Alex Gordon. The Mets don't have an outfielder. Alex Gordon puts up numbers. And let's be honest, he would be a huge addition for the New York Mets. What, is he worth a Jonathan Neese? Well, listen, I don't think anybody wants to see Jonathan Neese go. I don't think anybody is necessarily trying to convince the Mets to get rid of him. This is a trade of a strength for strength. The Royals have some outfielders coming up. And the Mets have some pitching. The Mets' one strength that they have right now is their excess in pitching. And Alex Gordon in 2011 for the Royals hit 303, 23 homers, 87 RBIs, 45 doubles, 185 hits, 101 runs scored. You add that to the Mets' lineup, I tell you, it helps them out. It fills one of your corner outfielder spots, which is something that they, they were unable to do last season. They need some production from an outfielder. And you look at his numbers this season, a little bit of a drop-off, but not that much. 294, 1472, but 51 doubles. He led the American League this year in doubles. 189 hits, which was a career high. 93 runs scored in 161 games. So he's shown some durability over the last couple seasons after having some injuries prior to that in 2009 and 2010. And, and you gotta look. You gotta look at it as a chance of the Mets trading what is a strength in exchange for a strength of another team. And the Royals need pitching, as you heard Robert Ford mention before. They're going to be looking for starting pitchers. 
You know, they, they're interested in bringing back Jeremy Guthrie. They'd be interested in an Annabelle Sanchez, somebody like that to kind of give them some starting pitching. They really need it. That's the one thing that the Royals are lacking. And looking at Alex Gordon's contract situation, signed through 2015 with a 2016 option, four years, $37.5 million that he signed before the 2012 season. That, that's, a, that's a decent contract. That's a team-friendly contract. Looking at 2013, he'll make $9 million. He'll make $10 million in 2014. 12 and a half in 2015 and 12 and a half in 2016. Obviously, if you're in the New York Mets, you know that they don't have a single guaranteed contract for the 2014 season outside of Jonathan Nice. All their other contracts are done. So they have the payroll ability to add a guy for 12 and a half million. And Alex Gordon at 12 and a half million is a bargain. Let's be honest. And I'd like to see the Mets add him to an offense that struggled. They've had their their offense has not gotten the job done. They don't have a single outfielder on their team. You got a team that's got David Wright and Ike Davis and a little bit out of Daniel Murphy and Ruben Tejada, and that's it. They don't have a single other offensive player right now. And I would suggest that trade with the Royals, Jonathan Neese, straight up for Alex Gordon. I think it helps both teams out. I can't, I can't see either team going wrong with that, that trade. And we talked about last offseason about the balanced trade, which really hasn't been out there. Every team's trying to screw the other team. They want to give up something that they don't want in exchange for something that they can use. And to me, you're better off making a fair trade. And I still feel, and a lot of people disagree with me, and I'm going to change you know topics a little bit, but a lot of people still think that that uh, trade between the New York Yankees and the Seattle Mariners, Michael Pineda for Jesus Montero, was a bad trade for the Yankees. I'm telling you, both teams are going to benefit from that. Let Pineda get his arm straightened out. But by the time the Yankees need Pineda to pitch and not make a lot of money, he's going to be there for them. When the Yankees have to get their payroll under $189 million before the 2014 season, they're going to be happy as hell that they got Michael Pineda on their staff. And as far as Jesus Montero is concerned, Montero, he's going to be a very good hitter. But let's be honest and get off of this New York mentality. The only fair trade is one where you screw the opposition. Because that's not the way it works. You had to give up something to get something. And Jesus Montero had a very good season in 2011. His September with the Yankees was very good. 328, four home runs. And he's a 260 hitter last year. 1562 for the Mariners. He's going to be better than that. He's going to be a 20, 25, 30 home run guy. Catching and DHing for Seattle. They might be able to build a young team around Jesus Montero. But it doesn't mean the Yankees made the wrong trade. They needed young pitching. They needed pitching that's going to be inexpensive over the next couple seasons. And that's where Pineda fits in. And Pineda is going to help the Yankees, if not immediately next year, because you got to see how he recovers from his, from his arm injury, yada, yada, yada. But he's going to make an impact for the Yankees next year. And the Yankees, who are always expected to be a playoff team, 
will benefit from having him in a rotation at some point next year. I could see Michael Pineda pitching in a postseason for the Mets, for the Yankees next year. You know, and you got Phil Hughes, you got Ivan Nova. Those are the guys that Brian Cashman wants to be able to maximize. He maximizes those guys' talent, then that's less money that he has to spend for 2014 when Hal Steinbrenner continues to say that that money ain't going to be there. An update on the Cardinals Nationals. Still 1-1, top of the ninth, game four. Drew Storen is facing uh, Daniel Delscalso now as the uh, the Nationals hoping to storm off and maybe get a walk-off win here. You know, if they could hold the Cardinals here, it'll have a chance from the ninth inning on, being the home team. But just to finish the uh, the whole the whole thing with the Mets, they're going to have to make some intelligent trades. And I don't know if every trade that you know ends up happening, everything that transpires between it is going to work and make things better. And then listen, you're not going to strike gold with every move you make. But I want to see some movement. I want to see some players that were around in the Omar Minaya regime moved for players that work in Sandy Alderson's system. To me, that's something that has to change and it has to happen. Sandy Alderson is not the general manager of the New York Mets to just roll over a team for three years in a row. Because honestly, you're going to get to a certain point where you're going to question what the guy is doing. There's players that are there. We understand that. But you don't need a general manager to field the same players that were there a year before. It's going to come to a point where Sandy Alderson is going to have to put his stamp on his team. And it's going to involve what happens this offseason. And this, right here, going into the 2013 season, is going to be the turning point in whether Sandy Alderson is going to be a successful general manager or a failure as a general manager. And while I say that, I'm not necessarily saying that this coming season is going to be the turning point. But what happens this offseason, what gets built or put together this offseason is going to tell you whether the Mets are going to be success over the next several seasons or they're going to be a failure and Alderson and Rashardi and De Podesta are all going to walk out for the next general manager. This is when something has to happen. And Met fans have seen two of the most boring off seasons that a New York team has seen in a long time. And we understand why. We understand everything that happened with the Madoff situation and the Wilpons. We understand why the money isn't there. And nobody, or at least anybody with any logic, is saying that you have to all of a sudden open up the checkbook and start spending money. But it's time for Sandy Alderson to put his stamp on this team. And we'll see. It's going to obviously start out with what happens with David Wright. Like we mentioned before, Wright and the Mets are in negotiations. I think it's fair to say that Wright will be extended some point in the foreseeable future. I think Wright will be extended. He'll finish his career with the Mets. He'll be the centerpiece of the Mets organization. And they'll follow that up by extending R.A. Dickey to some terms. And then they're going to go from there. And the question is, where do they go from there? 
You, know, you talked about Ike Davis. You talked about Jonathan Neese, potentially Ruben Tejada, Daniel Murphy. You're not really sure about his value. But those are the type of players that the Mets are going to look to try to flip. Now, can they win with those players? Absolutely. But they can't win with the outfield that they got. And they certainly can't win with their outfield and their catching position producing at what it produced last year. Does that mean that Josh Tolley is no longer the Mets catcher after the season, after his past season? Listen, I, I don't mind Josh Tolley that much. But I know the Mets need to increase the offense they get from behind the plate. And simply platooning him with Kelly Shopik is not going to get the job done. The Mets have to make a move behind the plate in some way. And I don't know what it is. I can't tell you right now. Does it involve bringing in a guy like J.P. Arncibia, who you know is having issues with the Toronto Blue Jays and their management and their front office? That might be a move the Mets can make. You look at some other catchers, a Mike Napoli, who's a free agent, coming off of a down season. After hitting 328 for the for the Rangers last season, he had a down season this year. Is he a guy that you pursue as a free agent? I, obviously, in order for the Mets to be able to do it, his price would have to come down a little bit. He's a guy that could probably get a four or five year deal, even though he's a catcher. He made 9.4 million dollars in the 2012 season through arbitration. And is coming off a season where he hit just 227, 24 homers, 56 RBIs. But a couple things you might not know about Mike Napoli. From 2008 on till 2012, he's hit 20, 20 or more home runs every season. Of course, everything culminated with his 2011 season where he hit 320 with 30 homers, 75 RBIs. I don't know if anybody could expect him to do that on a consistent basis. Certainly, the Los Angeles Angels didn't see that. They wouldn't have traded him as easily as they did when they sent him to Toronto. And obviously Toronto sent him to Texas for Frank Francisco. Can you believe that? How did that trade work out? <laughs> Rangers got Mike Napoli from the Blue Jays for Frank Francisco. And all Frank Francisco gave them was what? You know, a chair in the stands? So obviously the Toronto Blue Jays were not expecting Mike Napoli to be what he was last year. So is that a situation where maybe the guy just had a big season? Maybe that's his glowing moment in the major leagues? It's possible. Because here's a guy who's been known to strike out a lot. 137 strikeouts in 2010 in 140 games. I know he only played 113 in 2011, but just 85 strikeouts. Played 108 games this year and struck out 125 times. So you know he's going to strike out a little bit. His OPS in 2011 is unbelievable. It's up there with MVPs. It was over 1,000. I don't think he's going to be able to maintain that. And he certainly didn't show that this year. But the Mets are going to have to do something when it comes to catching. I mean, I don't know if Napoli gets in the Mets price range of something they could afford. But they do have to upgrade their catching position. If you check out Bases Empty blog, JohnPielli.com, I wrote an article yesterday really talking about Chris Carpenter. And Chris Carpenter is, is the man of many comebacks. Here's a guy who has done a tremendous job in his time with the, 
the uh, St. Louis Cardinals. Here's a guy who threw shutout ball yesterday, helping the Cardinals put the Nationals on the brink of elimination. But here's a guy who 10 years ago yesterday was released, released by the Toronto Blue Jays after being a first-round draft pick in the 1993 draft, number 15 overall. When this guy was coming up, they thought he was going to be better than Roy Halladay. And this is in Toronto in the late 90s. Here's a guy who struggled through his time in Toronto, was the opening day starter in 2002, and ends up being released after the season, after a torn labrum. The Cardinals took a chance on him. They signed him for the 2003 season with an option for 2004. He never made it back in 2003. So the Cardinals bought the option out, but signed him back. And he went 15-5 and five for them. 21-5 and five in 2005, went into Cy Young. And leading the Cardinals to the World Series championship in 2006 with his 15-8 and eight record. But remember 2007, and I was there at the game. Opening day, Mets-Cardinals. Cardinals raising their World Series championship banners, their banner, which they put up again in 2012 for the 2011 season. But I remember him being, being at that game, and Carpenter got hit up a little bit by the Mets. The Mets ended up winning the game, but that was it for Carpenter the rest of the season. Tommy John surgery, he's done. Didn't come back until the end of 2008. And bounced back in 2009, winning 17 games. 16 games in 2010. And then, as the pattern takes it, a not-so-good season win-wise, but he led the league in innings pitch, starts, and batters faced. He leads the Cardinals to the World Series championship again in 2011. And, of course, his, uh, his th thoracic injury that he had this past season ends up hurting him as he only pitches in three games in September. But how many guys do you trust in a big spot like Chris Carpenter? He has been a tremendous, tremendous postseason pitcher. You know, you look at his, his game, his five and two-thirds innings yesterday against the Nationals, throwing shutout ball, doesn't strike out a lot of guys, but gets the ball put in play, leads the team to an 8 nothing victory. 2011 postseason, he was 4-0, including the complete game shutout against Roy Halladay in the deciding game of the NLDS. 2006, he was 3-1 in the postseason, including eight shutout innings against the Detroit Tigers in the World Series. Here's a guy in his career, is 10-2 in the postseason. Does that even get acknowledged? You talk about Kurt Schilling, you talk about John Smoltz, you talk about Andy Pettit. You talk about guys who have been big-time postseason pitchers. Why isn't Chris Carpenter in that same discussion? And who knows what you could expect for him if the Cardinals are lucky enough to win and move on to the NLCS. Who knows what to expect? But I'll tell you, if I'm a Cardinal fan, I'm feeling pretty comfortable when number 29 is on the mound. And I know Kyle Loesch has had a great season. I know they ride whatever they could get out of Adam Wainwright, who's coming back from the Tommy John surgery a year ago. You know, Jaime Garcia, Jake Westbrook. You know they got some very good starters. 
And we all know Kyle Loesch is going to get a nice contract after this season. But I tell you, the one guy, the one rock in that rotation is a guy who made just three starts this year, and that's Chris Carpenter. And I think it's about time we start talking about him as a postseason pitcher because he's been great. How many guys are out there to pitch in a postseason? And number one, have pitched in five postseasons. Number two, can tell you they have a 10-2 and two record with a 288 ERA and 16 starts. Not too many. It's time to acknowledge it. How about acknowledge the fact that this guy in four starts in a World Series is 3-0 and with a 2 ERA? Tell me that doesn't stand for a big game pitcher. And another thing, I would not be surprised to see Chris Carpenter's number 29 being retired by the St. Louis Cardinals. Because for a team that's had guys like Dizzy Dean and Bob Gibson and Joaquim Andujar, Chris Carpenter ranks up there as the best postseason pitcher, let alone all-time pitcher that the St. Louis Cardinals have ever had. And that says a lot when we're talking 100 years. That's saying a lot when you talk about a team that had Dizzy Dean and Bob Gibson and Joaquim Andujar and Bruce Suter. It's time to give Chris Carpenter the credit he deserves because he's done a tremendous job. And I, I think it would be nice to see the Cardinals make it to the NLCS again. I know a lot of people are tired of the Cardinals. They won in 2006. They won last year in 2011. But if, if you're telling me that you're not tired of the Yankees, then you, you can handle the St. Louis Cardinals. You could handle the St. Louis Cardinals making another postseason run. And I tell you, that tells a lot for what Mike Matheny has done in his first year as a manager. A team that does not have Albert Pujols anymore. A team that decided that they weren't able to match what Pujols got in Los Angeles with the Angels. Antonio La Russa, the Hall of Fame manager he is, stepping aside after winning a World Series last year. Dave Duncan, unable to be with the team this year due to you know the, the sickness of his wife. For the team to move on, with whether it was Carlos Beltran, or John Jay, or some of the other guys that have come in there and helped out the Cardinals, Yadier Molina stepping up and becoming the team leader, whether it was Mike Matheny with no managerial experience going out there and leading the team. And give Derek Lilliquist some credit too because he's inherited some of the stuff that Dave Duncan has taught him and has done a very good job with that staff this year. Lance Lynn did a great job even though he's pitching in the bullpen now. He's actually on the mound now, bottom nine, Cardinals-Nationals, still tied at one in game four. But the Cardinals have another run left in them. I could see them beating the Nationals. To obviously, one more win, and they're in the NLCS, where they'll face the San Francisco Giants. Obviously, the Nationals still clinging to a chance. They win today. They win them, you know, tomorrow at home. Then they move on. But next time we'll be talking about the, the league championship series, which I think will be Cardinals-Giants, and I think it will be Yankees-Tigers. We'll see how it ends up working out. Thanks a lot. Passball Show on TR Radio Networks. John Pielli. want to thank Dylan Owen, prospect from the New York Mets organization, Robert Ford, writer and broadcaster for the Kansas City Royals, and, of course, Terry Adams, former pitcher for the Cubs and the Phillies. We'll be back at you next week.